Good morning once again. There are some things that God really, really wants you to know. There are some things that life just will not work out if you don't know them. See, every human by nature, that is by birth, and by choice have a very big problem, and that is we have suppressed the truth about God. Romans 1 tells us that we have, so he's made himself plain to us, yet we have suppressed the truth about God. And Romans 1 continues to say that we not only suppress the truth about God, we exchange God for things that are not God. We worship and serve things as God, but they're actually things that were created by God. And this is a very big problem that all of us have. And this is the exact problem that Exodus hones in on that Pharaoh has. You may remember uh, a few chapters back in chapter 5 of Exodus. And by the way, you can be turning to chapter 8. But in chapter 5 of Exodus, uh, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they say, let my people go. The, Yahweh says, the Lord says, let my people go that they may worship me. And this is what Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord? That's Yahweh. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So we see there in that verse that he's saying, okay, number one, I'm not so sure Yahweh even exists. He goes on, by the way, in, in the next verses to say, you're just lazy. <laughs> That's why you want to go worship this Yahweh. You're just lazy. I think of, by the way, people today, atheists today who say, Oh, this God of the Bible, you people, you weak Christians have just made him up because you want to create for yourself some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose, some sort of comfort in life. I'm sure you've all heard that. That, that would be the general atheist position that the whole reason people invent, quote unquote, invent God is just to appease ourselves. Well, Pharaoh's saying, you've invented this God just because you're lazy. I don't know him. Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? But, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the Bible also tells us that Pharaoh not only suppressed the truth about God, he also exchanged God for things that are not God. This is, you can see this uh, all through the Bible, especially later on when it talks about the gods of Egypt. God's going to say, don't go back, Israel, to worshiping the gods of, e uh, of Egypt. They worship things like the Nile. We talked about how the Nile was so important for their life. Well, they worshiped the Nile. They believed that the Nile was an embodiment and a, a personification of a God who was providing for and protecting them. And so they would worship that God. 
They worshipped a god of fertility because, you know, you, you have to have humans in order to become a powerful nation and to have your families and your relationships. And so they worshipped a god of fertility that had a frog head. Interesting. You see how these are kind of lining up with the plagues yet, by the way? You got the Nile, you got the frogs. And, and really, we could, we could go on and on. I won't do it right now. Um, but we can see how each and every one of these plagues is actually fitting with what either some god was symbolized by them or it is something that a god was supposed to protect or provide for them. Anyways, all that to say, Pharaoh suppressed the truth about God. Not only that, he exchanged God for other gods. He worshiped and served other things. But this is the human condition. Pharaoh is just a stark, clear example of the human condition. But this sets the stage for the plagues. It's as though God says, Pharaoh, you don't know me. You don't believe I exist. You're going to worship things other than me. Let me introduce myself. And boom, here's the plagues. And this just sets the stage, sets the background for what we are going to look at today because all through the plague narrative, God over and over again, I should have counted how many times, but I would bet 10 or so times, God says the words, I'm doing this so that you may know. God wants to inform us of some very important things through the, the plagues, through this exodus, uh, these exodus events. So what is the first thing that God wants us to know? What was he showing Pharaoh? What is he showing Egypt? What is he showing Israel? And what is he showing us through the plagues? Number one, God wants us to know God exists. Again, this may seem elementary to you, but this is the very foundation for everything, for all of life. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of life. God wants us to know God exists. We see this uh, most primarily uh, here in this fourth plague uh, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. So if you can find it in your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 20, or I've got it up on the screen. I'm just not very good at the slides, so I recommend following your Bible. If it begins there. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. I'm going to pause there for just a moment. Okay, so another plague. What's new? You know, God's already done the Nile. He's already done the frogs. He's already done uh, the, the gnats, you know. So now he's going to send flies. But, but look at how verse 22 starts. But, that is, you know, something different is going to happen. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, 
where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, or for this purpose, thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Do you, do you see what God was doing different there? He says, this, this next plague is going to come upon you. It will be very similar to the last ones, but I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to send a swarm of, of these flies, these flying insects all over the land, except for the land of Goshen, except for where my people dwell. Now, I don't know if you know much about insects and this was before the time of spraying chemicals out into the air to repel insects. <laughs> but this is simply impossible for, for the whole land of Israel to be covered with swarms of flies. I mean, this isn't, this isn't talking about just a few here and there. They're covered with swarms of these flying insects. And yet just this one area, it's as though there is a wall. Not a single one in the land of Goshen, where God's people dwell. This would be like, or actually even less impressive than me saying, I'm going to jump into the deep end of a swimming pool with all my clothes on, but you know what? My socks aren't going to get wet. You say, well, how are you going to do that? I don't know. It's impossible, right? But even more impressive, even more impossible is the fact that God could guard just this one area from these flying insects. I say, well, why is God going to do that? Well, he says there at the end of verse 22, it's uh, underlined up on the screen, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. That is, you need to know that I Yahweh, I am who I am. I exist. Not only do I exist, I am in the midst of the earth. That is, I am intimately, act, intimately involved and active in my world. I relate to my creation. Pharaoh, you don't know me. You don't feel like you should obey me. You should listen to my voice. Let me introduce myself. I am Yahweh. I exist, and I am here. And there's no other explanation for why these flies, these flying insects, would not be in the land of Goshen except for that I am here, and that I am in the midst of the earth, active. I mean, this is, again, it's, it's so foundational, but it's, it's, it's getting less and less common in our world today for people to even believe there is a God. Or if there is a God, you can't know him, right? I mean, that, that's the atheist and the agnostic. The atheist says there is only matter. There's, there, there, there is no God who created it all. Now, Pharaoh was not an atheist, right? He was a polytheist. That means he had many gods, but he still did not believe. He was an atheist towards Yahweh. How about that? 
But then you have the agnostic. I believe this is all how, how he was toward God as well. The agnostic says, well, there might be a God, but you can't really know him. He's not really involved. He's not really relational. I think, by the way, uh, instead of agnostic or atheist, many people are what I call a vague theist. Yeah, there's a God, but you can't really nail him down to one religion. Maybe, maybe Allah is true. Maybe Yahweh is true. Maybe Buddha was on to something. You know, I, I think it all, you know, and that's just a vague theist. Yeah, there's some God up there, and I throw up some prayers every now and then, but I don't, I don't know the address. I mean, but God is saying, no, I, am, I, I do exist. And yes, you can know me. I am a relational God, and I am a particular God. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I am the God of the Hebrews. And to show you this, I will make a separation between you and my people. This is a beautiful truth. God exists. By the way, uh, I'm not going to go super deep here, but God has continued to give evidence. God didn't just like stop giving evidence of his existence after the plagues. Right? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's saying creation, the orderliness, the fact that anything exists points to God. God has made all of us rational, relational, moral beings. Well, how do you get a rational, relational, moral being? Well, it has to come from a rational, relational, moral God. This is, this is, this is our God. Not only that, we see that this God has spoken to us. He has revealed himself, not just in creation, but in his word, to where it cannot be misunderstood, misinterpreted, or, or exchanged, as you know, like the Egyptians did. They worshiped the Nile. They worshiped the sun. God says, no, worship me. And in his word, I mean, just again, evidence is over and over. Prophecies fulfilled. Prophecy given hundreds of years later. Prophecy fulfilled with precision. Boom. This is God's word. Not only that, but God has proven without, beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has sent his word into this world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He is the sin-bearing substitute. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, you have back then. I, I should stop right now, but there's, there's just so much good here. You have a guy who claims to be God, who claims that he can forgive sin. You have a guy who walks around doing miracles and people's jaws are dropping and crowds are following him and the Pharisees are angry because <laughs> he's getting all the attention. So what do they do? They have him nailed to a cross by Roman executioners. These guys are professional executioners and they go up to, to Herod and say, he's dead. He's already dead. You say, are you sure? They go, they put a spear in his side. What happens? Water and blood pour out of his lungs. That's dead, dead. Then they put him dead in a tomb. <clears throat> they knew exactly where that tomb was, by the way, because they had guards sitting at that tomb because they were afraid the disciples would come steal the body away. They'll make it look like something happened, like a resurrection. <gasps> Where'd the body go? And they've got him. No, they had guards there. Jesus is in that tomb, and then he wasn't. <laughs> the guards go back saying, we don't know what happened. He's just not there anymore. 
The stone is rolled away. He's gone. And then this Jesus, the one who hung on the cross, the one who had water and blood pour out of his side, appears to his disciples. He appears to his followers. He says, touch my wounds. Give me some food that I may eat. And then these disciples, these followers of Jesus are so convinced that very dead Jesus on the cross is now very alive. They're so convinced that most of the actual disciples, what we think of as disciples, did lose their lives saying Jesus has risen again. And many, many others have ever since then in church history. In fact, right now, more people are dying for their faith, for believing that Jesus has risen from the dead than ever before. But those eyewitnesses were the first ones. And we say, if they were willing to, to give their life for this, there's something to it. You don't give your life for a lie. You don't give your life when you have taken the body and hid it. God has given us ample proof. That may put my sermon over time, but we'll see what happens. God exists. But the problem is knowing God exists cognitively up here is not enough. And I would say for us, knowing God exists, knowing that the Bible is the word of God, knowing that Jesus is God the Son is not enough. The magicians, Pharaoh's sorcerers, they are coming to believe that God is real. They said in 821, this, or sorry, 819, this surely is the hand of God. So they've already been saying that in, in the past plagues. I think it was the, the very last plague, the third one. And now we have Pharaoh beginning to believe God exists. I mean, several times he's going to ask Moses to pray for him to Yahweh that the plague would be removed. I mean, and then he, surely after this, this Goshen thing of, of having the plague be separate, he believes. But the fact is, there is a big difference between believing God and obeying God. Believing in God, rather, and obeying God. There is a massive gulf between accepting that God exists and worshiping God. I bet a lot of you are thinking of a particular verse right now. Even the demons believe and they shudder, but they don't bow down. There is a big difference. And that leads us to the next thing that God wants us to know. Number two, no God is deserving of uncompromised worship. No God is deserving of uncompromised worship. See, we live in a culture right now that thinks of God and gods as kind of a Swiss army knife. At certain times, you pull God out when you need him, when you're in a trouble. Oh, I've got it here. I've got the screwdriver on my, my or, or some would even say, well, again, you can have all sorts of gods. Just put them all together in one package, and that's their Swiss Army God. Others would just say, I just, I, I add God to my life. I'm going to keep living it the way I want to live it, do things the way I want to do it. But I'll give God Sunday. I can do that. I might throw up a prayer before meals. I, I, I can do that. But God is deserving of uncompromised worship. We see this temptation to compromise in what Pharaoh comes back to Moses and says, verse 25, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. 
That's not what God said to do, is it? God said, go out of Egypt a three days journey and there you will sacrifice, serve, and worship me. We, we need to think about this for a second because you say, well, of course he's not going to do that. That's not what God said. Well, what about what's really going on in Moses' heart at this point, right? I mean, he is in an incredibly tough situation. This would have been the hardest thing Moses had ever faced in his entire life. He's, he's in a contest between him and the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. He's made things worse for Israel, at least Pharaoh has, since he's come to save them. And last we heard from Israel, they're mad at Moses. <laughs> the Lord judged between you and, uh, and us because you have brought these things upon us. But now Pharaoh's given him this out. You can make it all in now. You can relieve the tension, relieve the pressure. You can make things just be, be happy again if you just compromise. You can still worship your God, but you got to obey me as well. You can, so, you can worship your God, but not exactly the way he said. That is what Pharaoh is trying to get him to do. How does Moses respond? Verse 26, <clears throat> But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. That, by the way, in the Hebrew is the strongest possible form of no that he uses there. Anyway, it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Now this is going to continue, but I just want to point out what he's doing. He's first giving a practical response. He's saying some of the animals that we are going to be sacrificing to God are considered sacred to the Egyptians. Again, they, they felt that, that cows and, and many other things were sacred. And, they're, and Moses is saying, I know that God is going to require these sacrifices of us. We can't sacrifice sacred things in front of their eyes. That would be an abomination to them, and they will stone us. So either Moses will have to further compromise, Moses and the Israelites will have to further compromise by not sacrificing what God says, or they will be killed. That's a practical Response, But then look at verse 27. Moses gets to the root of the matter. We must, oh, next slide. We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So yeah, there are practical reasons we're not going to do this. But the ultimate reason is God told us to leave. He told us to get out of the land and sacrifice. You're telling us to sacrifice, but to do it in the land. And now Moses is making it clear, I am 100% going to obey God, and I'm 0% going to obey you. It's interesting. It's interesting in our lives the way we may do this. We, we need to be more like Moses in these things because I think we face similar situations all the time. Maybe it's your boss or a coworker who says, hey, 
I kind of just need you to put this expense in the wrong account because that'll help our taxes. <laughs> It'll be good for us. And, and you know what? The government does, doesn't deserve our money anyway, you know? And so I, I know you're a Christian. I know you go to church and all, but I mean, this really isn't a big deal. People do it all the time. Or maybe if you're in school, maybe you have a friend who wants to cheat off your homework. They want to copy it. Maybe they want to you say, hey, don't block your test while we're taking the test. I, I, I didn't get to study very well, you know? It's no big deal. It's not like you're the one cheating. I am the one cheating, you know? And so maybe that's not that big of a deal. Just a little compromise. Or maybe it's not even other people, by the way. Maybe it's your own flesh trying to get you to compromise. Uh, maybe it's okay if I just tell this one little white lie. I love that we have that category. Like, it makes it not a lie, a white, a clean lie. No, it's a lie. Anyway... I mean, I normally am so honest, so this, this won't hurt. This won't be that big of a deal. Maybe I can withhold forgiveness just this once because what that person did was over the line. I, I normally forgive, but that, no, that's too much. I can't forgive that. Or maybe I can just look at some lewd images Maybe I can just flirt with that person who is not my spouse because, man, I've been working really hard. I deserve it. I deserve a little happiness. We compromise. Do you know what Jesus said about compromise? Matthew 6, 24, no one, not even you, not even me, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. There is no room for compromise in our lives, friends. There is no room for, you can sacrifice to him, but in the land. There is no room for, oh, they're the one cheating. I'm just letting them. There, there is no compromise with God. We are either worshiping God or we are worshiping something other than God. We're always worshiping. We worship the one we bow down to. We worship the one we serve. We worship the one we obey, whether God or some other thing, some other person, ourself. Now, that means you have a decision to make, doesn't it? Choose today whom you will worship. <laughs> I've got to choose. Am I going to worship God or am I going to worship these other things? Am I going to worship uh, the one who created me or am I going to worship these created things? And this is the third and most important thing God wants us to know from the plagues. Number three, know God is greater. I'm pretty sure I've used this point like a few sermons ago, but it's still true today. <laughs> No, God is greater. God is infinitely greater. He is supreme. He is superior over anything else we might be tempted to worship and serve and obey. And that's what God wants to show in the plagues. I see basically two categories that God proves he's greater than in the plagues. I could expand it to three, but I'm going to keep it to two today. 
And I want to show you this. Sorry, my slides are a little crazy, but God is greater than any external protection or provision. God is greater than any external, that is, created material protection or provision. Again, you think about the Egyptians. They worshiped the Nile. Because why? Because it would bring them such life, such prosperity. They worshiped frogs. <laughs> why? Because they believed the frog goddess would make them fertile, that it would make them reproduce and bring these uh, many people and, and these relationships and families. They worship all these external created things. Sure, they label them with a, a, a supernatural God, but they're really just worshiping the creation. They're really just worshiping the protection and provision these material things can provide. But look at what God does here. In verses uh, 1 through 7 of chapter 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of God will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction. There you go again. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all the of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Verse 5, And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but none of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Now, there's a bit of an irony here I just want to point out. The Israelites want to go make sacrifices, animal sacrifices to their God, but Pharaoh won't let them. And so what's God's response to that? I'm going to sacrifice your animals. I think it's ironic. I think it's kind of funny. But what we need to see here that's bigger is that number one, many of these livestock did uh, serve as gods for them. They were sacred to them. They were holy to them. Again, that's why Moses says we can't sacrifice in the land because that would be an abomination, you know, to sacrifice these animals they consider to be gods. And so God is literally killing their gods. But we need to remember what these gods represented. These gods represented material possessions, prosperity. You think about how Abraham was described back in Genesis. It says, Abraham was very rich. He had many herds and flocks. And that's how it describes his wealth. In many ways, that was the wealth of a person. That was the wealth of a nation. That was their prosperity. That was their material possessions, or at least the means to buy them, was their flocks and herds. And they worshiped these things. And God says, you're going to worship the creation? You're going to worship these possessions instead of me? I'm going to take them away. I'm going to show you just how foolish it is to set your hopes on created things 
to give your heart to material possessions. And by the way, you could again say this with the frogs, that the, the fertility, they set their heart on relationships, family. There's nothing wrong with these things, by the way. These are all good gifts from God, but a good gift from God becomes a bad thing when it becomes your God. And that's what they were doing. That's what we often do. They had exchanged God for created things. Now, again, we don't worship these idols, I hope, <clears throat> but we worship what those idols represented. Why do we work such long hours at our jobs? Why do we forsake our families? Why do we, you know, forsake opportunities to serve so that we can make more money, so we can move up in our jobs? Why are our houses so full of stuff? Why is it so hard to be generous and serve and giving, rather, to others? Could it be that we're worshiping the creation rather than the creator? I love how Paul addresses this uh, in, in Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, that is those who have lots of material possessions, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The fact is, we're always going to be around creation. We're going to always have some material possessions. The problem is not having material possessions or even enjoying them. The problem is setting our hopes on them. The problem is giving our heart to them rather than to God. And Timothy, or Paul rather, to Timothy saying, tell them not to set their hopes on something so foolish the uncertainty of riches, the uncertainty of these external things to protect them, to provide for them, that's foolish. Don't set your hopes on those things. Set your hope on God. Now, you can still have those material possessions because God gave you those things to enjoy. It says that there, um, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Those material things that you do have are to point you to God. To point you to the glory, the goodness of God. They are to serve that purpose, not for you to serve them. And part of that will mean that we're ready to share. We're generous. We're ready to share. We're, we're ready to sacrifice of what we have. Why? Because we haven't set our hope on them. We haven't set our heart on them. So we can let them go anytime God requires it. Anytime we see the opportunity God is greater than any external created things. He deserves our hope. He deserves our heart. You see how quickly he took away Egypt's livestock? That's how quick all your external created things can be taken. That's how uncertain they are. 
Now, there is another category I want us to see here. God is greater than your power to save and satisfy. That is, you cannot save or satisfy yourself like God. You are inferior. You are incompetent to save and satisfy yourself <clears throat> the way God would. I see two examples from the text on this, by the way. I have up there um, Exodus 8, or 9, rather, verses 8 through 12. This is about the magicians. They're, they're a good example of people who could not save or satisfy themselves. Beginning in verse 8, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took the soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, <clears throat> and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And then, look at this, verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now you need to understand what a magician is. A, a magician was a professional life manipulator. They would use their knowledge. They're called wise men. They're called sorcerers. They would use their knowledge and their skills and their abilities to manipulate life in a way that served them. And it makes sense, right, why Pharaoh would have them on, on their payroll, on his payroll. <laughs> He's using them, you know, to manipulate life for him. These are powerful people. But... All through the plagues, we see God chipping away at these magicians. They're able to repeat the plague, but they can't remove the plague. What good is it to add more bloody water, more frog? What, what good does that do? They couldn't remove it. Then, at the third plague, they could no longer keep up. They couldn't do it. And that's why they say, surely this is the hand of God, because they could not produce gnats. They couldn't keep up with God. And now we see them shamed by God. They now have boils all over their body. This is so shameful. This would show their defeat so clearly that they can't even stand before Moses. The magicians have failed to save and to satisfy. They could not do it. Now the next example is an even more powerful person. Pharaoh, the richest, most powerful, most influential man in the world, could not save or satisfy himself. Exodus 9, 12 through 17, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. It's interesting that God is even in control of the heart of this man. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Verse 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. That's, that's, that's a repetition. That's for emphasis. This is going to hit you, Pharaoh, on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Why? so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand 
put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Do you see that? I mean, this, this is just like, God just did a mic drop moment. Like he has just taken the most powerful, the most influential, the most mighty man in the world. And he just said, you are merely a tool in my tool bag. <laughs> he says, you exalt yourself, but it, all that's happening is I'm showing you that there is none like me in all the earth. That's what's happening through you exalting yourself by not letting my people go. He says, you know, you, you think you're strong, you think you're powerful. You, you actually, by the way, think you're God. I should mention that. He believes himself to be a God. But the fact is, Pharaoh, I have raised you up. And I have raised you up, not so that you may be exalted, but so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see what a massive defeat that is? And by the way, I don't know if you know of the law of uh, the lesser, or sorry, the greater to the lesser. If this was true of the greater, the magicians and of Pharaoh, they couldn't save themselves. They couldn't satisfy themselves. If it was true of them, it is true of you. These were more powerful men than me. These were stronger men than me. These were smarter men than me. If you are trusting in yourself, you will fail. You will fail yourself. You will not be able to save yourself. You will not be able to satisfy yourself. Why? Because we're mere creation under the great creator. We were never meant to save or satisfy ourselves. By the way, I keep using that word save. I just want to say this to you. If you are trusting in your good works, if you're saying, you know what, I'm not that bad of a person on the scale, surely I've done more good than bad. And so I'll be able to stand before God on judgment day. If that is your hope, you will be sorely disappointed. I could never stand before God because the wages of even one sin is death. If I'm trusting in me to save me, my good, my self-righteousness, I'm in big trouble. And so are you. I think what uh, John the Baptist says in John chapter 3 is very instructive. See, John the Baptist, he comes on the scene, kind of a crazy looking guy, eating locusts and wearing camel hair. Uh, anyways, but he's, he's proclaiming that the kingdom uh, is at hand, like the, the Messiah is coming and he's baptizing people and, and, and he's, you know, to charging them to repent, and he gains this huge following. He literally has disciples. You know, Jesus had disciples. He had disciples, but everything changed when Jesus came on the scene. Everything changed when Jesus began doing his ministry. Uh, look at it in, in there, beginning in verse 26 of John 3. And John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, Jesus is baptizing, and all are going to him. 
Do you see what they're saying? Rabbi, there's a problem here. You, you were the big man just a little bit ago, but now that Jesus is here, everyone's sort of going to him. Look at John's response. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John's saying, any prestige I had, any success I had in my ministry was only from God in the first place. It was given from heaven. But then he goes on, verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So the one who has the, the, the following, that's, that's the true bridegroom. That's the main focus. But he says this, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, th this is just such good stuff. We, we should just spend the rest of today here. I won't. He, he's saying, look, it's not about me. Anything that I have, any knowledge, any power, any prestige I have is a gift from God. And when Jesus is on the scene, I want it to be about him. He has broken into this world. The true satisfier, the true savior has broken into this world. He must increase and I must decrease. I want to look at him and look less at myself. I want to trust in him and trust less in myself. I want to be satisfied in him and seek less satisfaction from myself. We think about John 1, 29. This is John's understanding of Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was a very good man. A lot of good works. He was a, evidently a great speaker, evidently very influential. But he says, there's, there's the one. <laughs> there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can't save myself, but there's the Savior. I can't satisfy myself, but there's the one who will do away with sin, who will give me himself and make me satisfied in him. This is our lifelong battle. The heart change happens at regeneration, at salvation. We get a new heart, a new mind, a heart that desires God more than sin, more than self, more than external things. But the fact is we still wrestle with the flesh. This will be a lifelong battle for me, for you, for all of us. But we must fight. We must put these things that are not God to death in our hearts and in our hopes. We must set our hearts fully on God. We're about to do communion here in just a moment. And, I, and we got to get this. Jesus... The reason he is able to save you where you cannot is because his body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. And the reason you can be satisfied where, where, where we fell at that, where external things fail to satisfy, the reason Jesus can satisfy is because he gives to us. And it's not that he gives us all these possessions, riches, it's not that he gives us fame and fortune. He gives us himself. He gives us himself, and in him is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
Jesus covers our, our separating sin, separates us from God, and he satisfies us with himself. As we move into this communion time, I, I want to read for you Philippians chapter 3. This is what Paul talks about with his life, and it's just, it's so powerful as I think about my own life. So Paul has just spent the last couple verses explaining all his externals that, that he loved, all his credentials, how good he was, how powerful he was. But then he says this, verse 7, Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. <clears throat> I'm going to pray. And then Pastor Dave is going to come up and we're going to sing a song. And during that song, you can come up and, and grab these elements, okay? And then you can take them back to your seat and we can just think about who is truly God. He exists. He's here. He deserves uncompromised worship because he is greater. We can, we can think about those things. We can thank God that we have that in the blood of Christ. So if you're a Christian today, if you're walking in faith in Jesus today, this communion is for you. So I'm going to pray. And then Pastor Dave is going to come up and lead us in song. Father God, would you help us today to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing you. God, nothing else compares. No external thing, no material possession, no relationship compares to you. Even we do not compare to you, God. Would you teach us that we were not created to be satisfied in ourselves, but in you? And would you teach us, Lord, to look to you, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and find our salvation and our satisfaction in him? God, you are infinitely worthy of our worship. You're infinitely worthy of our obedience. And we want to find our satisfaction in worshiping and obeying you. God, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.